Amen. Speak, O Lord. We, we are under the conviction that God has spoken. If God hasn't spoken, uh, we would have nothing uh, to talk about this morning. We'd have no uh, basis upon which to talk about Him, uh, to preach His Word, but we do believe that God has spoken, and so our, our prayer is that God would allow us to, to listen and to be able to hear the things that He has said. And we're looking at a, a new a book of the Bible this morning for our church just to study through. We're in Second uh, John, and so if you would turn with me to, to Second John, and as you turn there, let me just repeat an invitation that uh, Mike gave earlier. For those of you who may be uh, newer to our church, we would love to uh, have dinner or lunch with you, whatever you want to call this, this meal that comes next, uh, for those of us that are kind of already a little bit hungry. Um, after this service, we're going to be having a newcomer lunch in the, the room across the hall there. We love the opportunity. If you've never been to one of those lunches or newer to the church, we'd love to have the opportunity to get to know you better. So please come and be a part of that here after this, this service. Second, and it'll be a few minutes after the service. There's, there's some kids or something in there now. We need to kind of get them out. And then we'll, uh, we'll go in there. So don't be afraid if you see some kids in there right afterwards. Second John, we're beginning Second John by God's grace this morning, and Second John is a book about truth and love, and as we read just the first three verses together this morning, you're going to see truth and love come up quite frequently just in these three verses as we begin this, this book about how we are united with one another by truth and love. And so if you'd stand with me, if you're able, in honor of God, as we read this together Second John, uh, verses 1 through 3. The elder, to the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. You may be seated. May God encourage us through his word this morning. Uh, Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are convinced this morning that you have spoken to us. And because we're convinced of of that truth, you've spoken to us, we want to listen. We want to know you. We want to know what you have to say to us. We want to know rightly about who we are, we want to rightly know about who your son Jesus is, who brings us into relationship with you. We want to know rightly about how that relationship takes place and how we're to walk in obedience to you and pursue you in relationship. And we want to know how to re- relate to one another and we want to know the truth. And we, we cannot know the truth. We cannot know all those things apart from your revelation. And so we, we turn to it this morning. I pray for those this morning who are in need of your truth in in specific areas, for those who are in need of your truth in in illness, who need to know how to to handle illness as a result of of, uh, uh, various things and need need to know the truth about how to respond to that. For those who are uh, struggling with family situations, give them the truth about how to, to deal with that in love. For those who are just hurting, just maybe not even sure this morning why they're hurting, give them your truth. Help them to see reality in themselves as, as, as you would have them, and help them not to be deceived about 
the nature of their problems or how to deal with those problems, but they would see you, know your truth, and respond rightly. And I pray for those of us who are here, who are called to be in relationship with one another, that you would give us the ability to be in right relationship with one another, for us to know the truth about our obligation to care for those who are hurting. Give us your grace. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen. A year or so ago, I was listening to a Radio Lab podcast while I was in the car on my way to, to speak at a conference and was sitting there in the car listening to this, this podcast. And the story that they were telling in one of the segments was about a, a man who was from Australia who had discovered that his grandparents were famous radio hosts. They had, in the 1950s, been radio stars. They had this, this show called like the, amazing, uh, the Amazing People, Amazing, what were their names? Uh, Pittingtons, The Amazing Pittingtons. And they had this, this radio program and uh, reached some 20 million listeners in the BBC radio broadcast there. And this, this man was talking about how he had discovered that his grandparents were famous when he went into the radio business. He, his grandfather had died when he was about four years old, and, and then his grandmother had remarried, and so they never really talked about this radio career that his grandmother had had. And he goes in the radio industry, and people find out that he's the grandson of this uh, one half of the amazing uh, Pittingtons, and so he... Uh, he begins to investigate what this show was. And it turns out the show that his grandmother and grandfather had, had had was this kind of this mind-reading act. And every week they would do some sort of telepathy or some sort of this illusion and everyone would be all amazed. And the radio lab, this, this story about this guy and his grandparents became about him trying to figure out how his grandparents had done all these illusions, these mind-reading tricks that they had done. And so he talked to his grandmother, and his grandmother was, had, had never revealed how she had done these things. And then she kind of reached a point where her health meant she couldn't communicate with him and tell him how she had done these things. And so he investigated and talked to other people, and no one could tell him how they had performed these amazing acts of mental telepathy or whatever it was. And so the Radio Lab producers go to Gillette Penn of the magic duo Penn and Teller. And they say, okay, here's the scenario. Here's what this, the amazing uh, Pennington's did. Uh, how did they do it? Penn says, oh, I can almost guarantee you how they did it. And now at this point, as I'm listening to the podcast, I've arrived at the conference. I'm supposed to be in there speaking very shortly. But I, I've got to know, how did they do this thing? I, I want to know, did they find out the truth? And so uh, Penn says, here's how they did it. And then the, the host cut away from the interview with him. He said, I don't know what sh- we should do here. He said, the truth is ugly. Like, it's not this sophisticated answer. We had this, this vision of them doing these amazing things to get this, this magic act to work. And he said that the truth, boy, the, the truth is just kind of blah. And he says, so we have this, this philosophical dilemma. We're journalists, and so our obligation is to not lie to you, but we're not sure if we want to tell you the truth because the truth is just kind of unpleasant. And I'm, you know, mentally strangling the radio here. And 
He says, so we've, we've decided not to, not to tell you how they did the, the, the act. He said, you can go online, go to this link, and you can find it there, but we're not going to tell you. Because, because reality is just kind of unpleasant here. It was an interesting philosophical decision, I thought. <laughs> you have this truth and you have people's perception of what should be true, and you realize that the truth that you have isn't going to really make them all that happy. And so you say, you know what, I think the best thing is not to give people the truth. And you, you maybe see where I'm going here, right? The, the church is in a similar position. We have been given truth. And I believe that God has given us a, a mandate to know the truth, to search out the truth, and to proclaim the truth. And yet, what do we know? We know that the truth that we proclaim to ourselves and to others is not always a pleasant truth. In other words, the truth that we proclaim affects people's perception of reality. And under our current perception of reality at times, it would seem like the truth of God, His truth found in His Word, is not a, a pleasant truth. It would seem, based upon our current values and what we hold dear and how we view reality, it would seem like that truth would not be a beautiful thing to know. It would be unpleasant. And so, we struggle, right? Should I proclaim the truth? How should I proclaim the truth? To myself, to others. How should I let others proclaim the truth to me? Second John is about truth and about love, how we're bound together by, by truth and, and love. And as we, as we think about this, this idea of, of truth and love found in Second John, we're going to, to encounter some struggles. In fact, let me, let me just, we're going to get to Second John, so, so don't, don't get a little bit antsy there. We're, we're going to get there. In fact, by the time we get there, it's going to be a little while. But by the time we get there, you'll say, okay, I realize we've, we've been in Second John this entire time. He's just been kind of dealing with some themes there. So, so we're good uh, for all you type A people out there like, like myself. Um, but let me just say this. I would argue that the church has always struggled with how to handle the truth, how to perceive the truth, how to handle it, how to proclaim it to others. It's, it's something we've always struggled with. We see it in Scripture from the very early days of the church. Handling the truth was, was a, a struggle for them. Now, I would argue in the contemporary church, there are, there are some specific ways that we struggle with the truth. It's not unique to us. It's not like no one else has ever struggled in the history of the church with truth in these ways. But there's kind of three ways, three examples of the ways that I think the contemporary church struggles with the truth. One way is this. The contemporary church often doubts that the truth can be known, right? We're doubtful that the truth can, can be confidently known, that we can come to something and say, okay, this, this is truth, we've arrived. Now, maybe we wouldn't say that we doubt truth exists. Yeah, we'd say God is truth, and we could even say Scripture contains His truth, but we're doubtful about our ability to know the truth. There's an illustration that I hear probably once every two months or so, and maybe you've heard this recently as well, but to describe how some people of our contemporary culture, even those within the church, view truth and religion and truth claims. It's, it's the illustration of the four blind men who come upon an elephant. You heard that one, right? And the idea is that one blind man grabs the, the trunk of the elephant and says, oh, this is a, a, a snake. And 
Another blind man comes to the side of the elephant and feels the side of the elephant and says, oh, this is the wall. And another person grabs the leg of the elephant and says, it's a, it's a tree. And the fourth blind man grabs the tail of the elephant and says, this, this elephant is a rope. You know, or this creature is a rope. And the point of the story, of course, is that no one person can claim to to, to know who God is, going to be able to say this is the truth about reality and God and, and who he is. And each religion is, is kind of, or each tradition is kind of getting a, a little piece of that elephant. Kevin DeYoung, a, a pastor, recently heard him speak, and, and he gave a, a great response to that illustration. He says, the illustration works to a point. The only problem is what? What happens if the elephant can speak? In other words, a person grabs the, the trunk of an elephant and says, ah, it's a snake. And the elephant says, uh, no, actually, I am an elephant. Another person grabs the tail. Ah, it's a, it's a, it's a rope. Uh, no, once again, elephant. You know. The illustration, if, in other words, if, if God has spoken, if God has said, this is who I am, our claims at ignorance don't hold water. You know, this idea, though, that we can't know truth, and in fact, that the idea of saying that we know truth is a dangerous thing, is, it, is, it pervades our culture and pervades the church. In fact, just this last week, uh, President Obama was, was giving a speech on, on religion, and he said something that I just found, and, and maybe, uh, you know, maybe if I had the opportunity to talk with him about what he meant, he would say, that's not exactly what I was saying, but what I heard him say was he said, you know, uh, doubt is where all faith should begin. He's talking about how faith, religion often produces violence, and he says that uh, no one should believe that they uh, have sole possession of the truth. In other words, for a religion to say, we've, we've arrived at the truth, and this is the truth, and your truth is not truth, I, I think Mr. Obama w- was saying that that's, that's a dangerous thing. Same idea. The church struggles with saying we, we can know the truth. We're much like what we see in the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, verse 29, says, The vision of all this has become to you like the words of a book that is sealed. And when men give it to one who can read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot, for it's sealed. And when they give the book to one who cannot read, saying, Read this, he says, I cannot read. In other words, the the scroll is given to people, God's revelation is given to people, and the person who's given it says, Oh, I'd love to read that, but... uh, I can't read, or I'd love to open that scroll and read it, but it's sealed, and I probably shouldn't break that seal. There's always a a reason uh, forgiven for why we can't know the truth. And so one of the struggles that I would say the contemporary church has with the truth is doubting that it can be known, doubting that we with confidence can know truth. Another, Another way that I think the contemporary church struggles with truth, and maybe this will resonate with you as well, is doubting whether the truth is important. So this person might say, okay, I believe that truth can be known, but at the same time, I'm, I'm doubtful how important it is to focus on truth and doctrine and theology because I want to be doing things. And so to, to bog myself down in, in thoughts about theology and doctrine just seems like a waste of time because I want to go out and help people and do things and, and love people. And if I spend all my time talking about theology or getting into theological arguments with people, then it's just going to be con- contrary to what I want to accomplish in loving them. And so one of the ways the church struggles 
with truth is doubting its importance. Maybe you heard this story a few weeks ago as well. There was a, a boy whose life story was the basis of a book called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. And it was a story about a, a little boy who said he died and went, went to heaven and saw things and came back and told his, his dad about it. And uh, just a few weeks ago, the, the boy publicly, he's now a young man, publicly recanted that story and said it, was, it wasn't true. I, I made it up for attention. The boy's name, by the way, was Alex Malarkey, which, which really should have been, a, I don't know, a little bit of a tip-off. No offense to anyone with the last name Malarkey, but I would definitely double-check that. The problem with the story, too, wasn't just, uh, wasn't just that he recanted later, but, but really, uh, Christians, for, for, you know, since the book had come out, many of them had said, hey, this doesn't correspond to what, what Scripture says about heaven. And the response that Tyndale House, who published the book, and many Christian bookstores says, well, we just want to have, this, we want to have a, a wide policy. We want to embrace people with different perspectives. In other words, what? The truth isn't that important. Don't get bogged down in a bunch of theological arguing about things, when in reality that, that book had no business being published by a Christian publisher. Because the truth matters. Our perception of heaven matters. And a book that contradicts what God's word says about heaven has no business being published by Christians. So I think we struggle, right? We struggle in saying we can know the truth. We struggle in, in being able to, to believe that truth is important. And a third way that we struggle with truth is, is fear in proclaiming it. And I'll just be honest with you. As, as I believe that truth can be known. I believe that truth is important, but sometimes I'm, I'm nervous ab- about proclaiming it. Even, even just giving you the illustrations I just gave you, I'm a little bit nervous because I don't want to come across as the mean wacko guy, right? That's so narrow in his understanding of the Christian faith that he doesn't accept anyone who differs from him on, on any points. I don't want to be perceived that way, and so, so proclaiming the truth sometimes is, is fearful for me. I don't believe that's right. Let me share with you some scriptures about how God says we are to perceive truth and understand truth. And by truth, I mean assertions about reality, things as as they truly are. Here's what we see over and over again. We see that scripture calls us to have confidence in and boldness in proclaiming the truth. And for example, we see very clearly in scripture, I'm just reading like a small selection of scriptures about the truth. We could spend the next uh, month reading scriptures on the truth and not exhaust all that God has to say about the truth. But let me just give you a few snippets here. For example, what we see in scripture is that we've been given the truth in God's word. Psalm 119 Psalm 119, verse 160, the sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous rules endures forever. God's word is the truth. We, we have it. God's given it to us. John 17, 17, Jesus says, as he's praying to the Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Therefore, what do we see in Scripture? We see that we have a responsibility to know the truth and communicate it. 2 Timothy 2.15, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. You're going to want to know this verse, right? 
to present yourself as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. What do we see? A responsibility to know the truth and proclaim it. John 14, 17, Jesus refers to the spirit of truth that we have. The world can't receive him, we have him. John 16, 13, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. So we have God, God's word is truth, we have it, we have the spirit of truth who helps us understand it, and we see that we're to communicate it, and we see also in Scripture that we're, we're saved by knowing the truth, and we have a call to communicate the truth. 2 Thessalonians 2.13 We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. How do we become sanctified? How do we become more like God? It's not just wishing really hard. It's by, by knowing truth. Believing it, knowing it, believing it, the Spirit enabling us to live it out. First Peter says you've purified your souls by obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love. Now love one another earnestly from a pure heart. That's First Peter one twenty two. The psalmists, we see, call us to pray to God to give us the truth. Psalm 25, 5, lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you, I will wait the day long. The psalmist, if, if truth can't be known, if truth isn't important, if we're not to be bold in our proclamation of it, the psalmist's prayer there is meaningless. God can't lead us in what we can't know. But the psalmist desperately cries out, lead me in your truth, teach me. Psalm 43, 3, send out your light and your truth let them lead me, let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling. The psalmist says, look, I, I know, I, I don't know how to live life. Give me your truth and let the truth lead me in who you are and how I should live and what I should think. Psalm 8611, Psalm 8611, teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. In other words, Scripture is not sympathetic with the contemporary church's claim to not be able to know and believe and proclaim the truth. Scripture is not sympathetic to that struggle in terms of saying, yeah, yeah, that's okay. God says, I'm giving you the truth. Know it, walk in it. What happens when we don't? What happens when we don't? Short answer, bad things, right? Longer answer, really, really bad things. Now, when it comes to what Second John is passionate about, Second John is passionate about truth and love. And what it means in Second John, when we don't know the truth, when we're a church that won't articulate and believe, proclaim, hold on to the truth. What it means in Second John is, is that when the church rejects truth, 
the church doesn't know how to love. Does that make sense? When the church rejects truth, we may not know it, but the church also rejects love. What I want you to see this morning as we go through the first three verses of, of 2 John is that I want you to see that we do not base our understanding of truth on a foundation of love, but rather the reverse is true. We base our understanding of love on a foundation of truth. We don't say, we don't, in other words, we don't first say, here's what love, here's what love is, now I'm going to define truth on the basis of what love is. We, we don't do that. That's dangerous. Instead, we do the exact opposite. We say, okay, what's the truth? Who is God? What is the nature of God? What is the nature of me in, re- in relation to who God is? We begin with that foundation. And then, after we have this foundation of truth, then we say what love is. If I reject, listen very carefully, if I reject that foundation of truth, if I, if I jettison that foundation of truth, if I, if I tear away at that foundation of truth, I say, I can't know the truth, or it's not that important, or I'm afraid of it. If I, if I reject that foundation of truth, I cannot love you. I cannot love you as God calls me to love you. That's so important to grasp. If I do not hold fast to the truth, I will not love you as I'm supposed to. In a church that rejects truth, our love becomes superficial and counterfeit. My love for you is based sometimes then on, on similarity of circumstance instead of common confession and being united through the person of Jesus Christ. If I do not have that foundation of, of love upon which to build, I'm sorry, that foundation of truth upon which to understand love, then I'm not going to love you for the reasons God tells me to love you. My love isn't going to be based upon the character of God. Whenever tough circumstances enter into our relationship, I'm not going to have the the knowledge of the truth that's going to call me to persevere in our relationship. The wrongs that you do to me are, are going to affect our relationship in a way that they shouldn't. The wrongs I do to you are going to affect you in a way that they shouldn't. I'm not going to sacrificially love you. Apart from the foundation of the truth, I don't have the ability to love you as I ought to love you. Apart from the foundation of the truth, Bethany Community Church, the people within her fellowship, cannot love each other as God's called us to. It's a huge thing for our church to rightly understand. Let me just say a few words very quickly about 2 John, then we're going to continue in the text here. 2 John, John is writing here, he's envisioning this unity of, of love through shared truth. This, this epistle is very short, 245 words long in the Greek. It's just 13 verses long here in our English translation. And John is, is going to use the word truth five times, love four times. He's concerned about this truth and love. He's going to talk about this foundation of truth, and then he's going to talk about love. We'll look at that next week, and then he's going to talk about a threat to this foundation of truth from false teachers. Then we're going to conclude in the fourth week. 
But what we're going to see is, is that he's passionate about truth and love, about people existing in unity through this shared foundation of truth that results in love. So let's, let's look here at, uh, at 2 John, these first three verses. And what I want us to do is I want us to see four things here. Four things about the nature of truth that help us love each other as John lays this foundation. Four things about the nature of the truth that help us love each other. Here's the first thing. First thing we see is that we are chosen by a sovereign God who loves us in truth. And here's what John says as he begins this epistle. The elder to the elect lady and her children. Okay, so this first thing, we're chosen by a sovereign God who loves us in truth. And John begins with this introduction, talking about himself and who he's writing. He refers to himself as what? How does John refer to himself? He refers to himself as the elder. Elder, as you know, is a designation of of leadership in a church. The word elder is a word that can be used interchangeably with pastor. It can be overseers, another word. All those words can kind of be used interchangeably. And what John is saying here is that he has this, this special relationship to the people that he's writing. There's this spiritual leadership that he has. And he doesn't refer to himself as apostle, although he could have referred to himself as an apostle. But he wants to, 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 to show their shared connection here. He says, I'm, I'm the elder. And who is he writing to? He says, the elder to the elect lady and her children. That word lady, I believe, refers to a church. As you go through the rest of the epistle, he's going to be using the second person plural uh, or as we say in Texas, y'all. He's talking to a group of people, so he's not talking to just one person. And he says to the elect lady and her children. And children, as we know from First John, is a designation that John uses to describe believers. Remember, he used uh, little children, children, I think uh, seven or eight times in First John. And so it's, it's something that he uses on a, on a frequent basis. So John's writing here to a church and the believers in the church. Now, there's one other word there before we go on that I want you to look at. It's the word elect, to the elect lady. What does that word elect mean? It means to choose. And why does he focus on the fact that the church has been chosen? How does that have to do with God's love? And, and how does that truth of this is the way in which God loves affect how we love each other? Keep your finger there in First John or Second John, and turn back to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter one. And in Ephesians chapter one, Paul begins by by talking about how God should be blessed, and he mentions election and predestination. Sometimes I talk to people about election or about predestination, and people say, "Well, you know what, Daniel." Um, I don't believe in, in those doctrines. I don't believe in election. I don't believe in predestination. I said, well, I understand how you might want to, to think more deeply about it. It's certainly a confusing thing sometimes to, to think about, and there's some mystery there that I, I certainly don't understand. But we can't say we don't believe in election, and we can't say we don't believe in predestination because God uses those words, and because those words are in Scripture, we need to believe them. Now, what they mean, we need to look at Scripture to see what Scripture says about them, and so let's, let's do that here. Ephesians chapter 1. Again, I'm not going to read this whole thing, but 
Paul begins by talking about why God should be blessed. He says, this is verse 3 of chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And then in verse 4, he uses the, the, the same word that we see in First John, or Second John, 1, uh, 2 John, verse 1. He says, Blessed be the God and Father, blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4, Even as he chose us, and that's that same word, to elect, to choose, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. That, the purpose being, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, there's love, and love here, we first look what the truth is, and then understand love on the basis of that. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, now what do I learn from that? There's so much we could talk about here, but here's what I want you to see. Paul's concern is that we understand that God chose us. He elected us. Does that mean that we don't have a responsibility to believe? No, that's not what it means. Are we still called to place our faith and trust in Jesus Christ? Absolutely. What it also means is that God, God chose us. He elected us. He predestined us before the foundation of the world. And the reason I think that he's emphasizing that this took place before the foundation of the world is that Paul wants to say, hey, God's choice of you, his decision to bestow love upon you, was not based upon anything about you or anything that you had done. God didn't look at your life and say, you know what, um, and Daniel, he struggles a little bit, but what a sweet guy. I'm going to ch- choose him. No, before Daniel even existed, before the conditions of the universe existed by which Daniel could exist, I mean, before any of that, God said, I, I-, I choose, I elect, I-, I predestine, and it's interesting that Paul emphasizes the phrase, in love. This wasn't something that he did coldly or, or, or callously. God's election of us, not on the basis of who we are or what we've done, but it, it's, it's just God's love, this attribute of God that's, that's love, that, that he chose us. Now, you say, how does this truth, that, that, jo- that John is writing to the elect lady, this lady that's been chosen, how does that truth the fact that a sovereign God loves in truth like that, how in the world does that help me, that foundation of truth, help me love other people? Well, there's many ways. Let me, let me just give you a couple examples. God's choice to love me, God's election, was not based upon these, these super qualities that I have. That should cause some significant humility on my part. Which is very helpful in loving relationships, right? When we have humility. And what it means is that there was nothing intrinsic about me that was lovable. I didn't have some attribute that, that was lovable. And sometimes when we think about love, we think, well, love means I respond to people who have these qualities that I like and I, I love them because of those qualities they have intrinsic to themselves. And we see God's love doesn't work that way. And what that means for me and my relationship with you or let me say it more nicely, you and your relationship with me is you don't, you don't say, well, Daniel isn't lovable enough yet. 
Once he gets this lovable level, then we'll talk. It, it means that, that as God sovereignly chose to love you, you ha- must choose to love others. Love is a decision that you make, a choice that you make to benefit others, to act sacrificially toward them for their eternal good. And there is absolutely nothing, hear this very carefully because this is so crucial for our relationships in this church, there is nothing that a person must do for you to begin the obligation you have to love them. Do you hear that? No one in this church owes you anything to receive your love. Your decision to sacrifice yourself for the benefit of the people in this community of faith begins now. Not sometime in the future when they earn it. We're chosen by a sovereign God who loves us in truth. That's the first thing about the nature of truth that I think helps us love each other, that foundation. Here's the second thing I want you to see. We're united by our common confession of truth. That's another thing about the nature of truth that I think helps us love each other rightly. So John has said, back in Second John, he said, okay, it's the elder to the like lady and her children. And then he says, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth. Now, this is very interesting to me. The emphasis here is on a possession of knowledge concerning that which is true and how that that shared confession is part of that foundation for how we exist in relationship to one another. I love in truth, I love them in the truth, and I don't, it's not just me, but also all who know the truth love you, love this church. Sometimes we have a very faulty understanding of, of what it means to exist in relationship together. And we have a faulty understanding of what the faith is. Here, John says, look, we exist in this relationship together by, by, by a common confession. First John 2.19, he would say this, that the false teachers went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. In other words, we are not united in this church by the fact that we all exist in the same, or we shouldn't be, united in this church, but the fact that we all exist in the same kind of socioeconomic status. That's not what should be the basis of our unity. The basis of our unity isn't all, that that we all kind of like the same type of worship music. We don't. (laughs) The basis of our unity isn't the fact that our personalities just kind of get along. We, we, We kind of do church the same way, and so we, we get along pretty good. The basis, the thing that unites us, one of the key things that unites us is our shared, our common confession, our belief about reality, 
about who God is and and the nature of truth, that is one of the things that, that binds us together. And apart from that, we don't have unity. So oftentimes, uh, you know, you hear people talk about the faith. You know, you know we're, all, we're all part of the same faith. And, and people sometimes when they talk about faith, what they mean is just kind of like this, this vague, abstract thing. Like, I kind of just believe that. You know? It's kind of, kind of all part of the faith. I want to read you some scriptures that talk about the faith. And what you see is as scripture talks about the faith, scripture is, is using the term the faith almost synonymously with, with truth, with, with, belie- with doctrinal beliefs. Listen to what Scripture says about the faith. Acts 6-7 talks about people becoming obedient to the faith. The number of disciples multiplied. A great many of the priests became obedient to the faith, to this belief, this doctrine about who Jesus was. Galatians 1-23, Paul is talking about his testimony, and he says that people were saying about him. He says, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. As he proclaims this, this faith, this, this truth, he's, he's, he's proclaiming, he's preaching that which he used to try to destroy. Ephesians 4.13 says, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, and listen, he links it to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ. So, so the faith isn't just some kind of vague, abstract thing. We all say, yeah, I'm part of the faith. It's, it's these beliefs that we have. It's these, these doctrinal convictions that we share about who God is and his character and who we are and how we're to relate to God. It's the faith. It's truth. It unites us. Ephesians 1, 27. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I, I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, the content of truth, the good news of who Jesus Christ is and how we can be in relationship with God. We're striving for that, that doctrinal truth, the gospel. The faith. Colossians 1.23, if indeed you continue in the faith. That doesn't mean just you continue in saying, oh, I believe things. You continue in the truth. Steadfast. This is Colossians 1.23. Steadfast. Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. The, the truth. The faith. In fact, First uh, Timothy. Let me read a little bit from First Timothy. First Timothy, chapter three. Uh, Paul concludes, and, and he's talking about he's talking about this common confession we have. And, and as he concludes First Timothy three, he talks about this common confession. He says, verse sixteen: "Great indeed, we confess is the mystery of godliness." And he, and he gives this confession about who Jesus Christ is. He was manifest in the flesh. These are doctrinal truths. He was manifest in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. That's, that's truth. That's the faith. That's a common confession that the church had. And then that, that unites the church, the truth about who God is. And then he says, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. What does that mean? Does that mean some people are going to say, you know what, I just don't, I just don't believe anything anymore? Not, not necessarily. 
When it says that people are going to depart from the faith, what he's saying there is people are going to depart from the truth, from, from right knowledge about reality, from right teaching about who God is. They're going to depart from the faith. And man, I don't want to be the, I don't want to be the crazy wacko up here, but it, it's happened, right? It happened from the very earliest days of Christianity. It's happening today. People continuing to, to profess things about Jesus Christ, but not being of the faith. He says, they'll depart from the faith, they'll devote themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. He talks about the, the legalistic things that they engage in. Bethany, we are united by our common confession of truth. A common confession of the truth helps us understand how we're to relate to one another, how, how we handle disagreements. As we handle disagreements, our, our objective isn't to kind of just kind of paper everything over and say, okay, well, boy, I don't want to have any uh, division in, in the church, and so I'm going to pretend like the truth doesn't exist. I'm going to downplay the, tr- the truth. Now, that doesn't mean that we, we divide over every element of things that we believe, but it means when it comes to the, the core truths of the, of, the, of the faith, we recognize that there are some things that are worth dividing over, and that's the loving thing to do. It also, you say, well, how does this truth help us love each other? It also, I think, helps us understand how we deepen relationship. I'm going to deepen my relationship with you, not by backing off of talking about the truth, but by engaging in conversations with you about the truth, and by us as a body continuing to confess to each other things that are true, proclaiming to each other the right things about who God is and about reality. That's how we deepen relationship. We don't deepen relationship by downplaying doctrine, by falling away from truth, but we take the faith and we celebrate it and we proclaim it and we sing it to each other. In fact, I I mentioned this uh, earlier in the sermon, just kind of alluded to it, but I think one of the goals that we fulfill, this idea of, of professing our our common confession and deepening our relationship and our love for each other by, by the truth. I think one of the ways is by singing, right? It's by singing. And oftentimes uh, people come to me and say, you know, boy, what we sang today just went so well with the text. And, and there have been times where I've been singing, all of, man, that's, that's right on with what I'm about to be, be preaching. And, and that's not a coincidence. I slave over the worship. No, I'm just kidding. Mike. Mike, he just pours over the text and talks to me. What are you going to be talking about? Crafts that make sure that the songs we sing reflect the truth. In fact, I asked him on Friday, I said, you know, tell me about what are we singing on Sunday? And he was able, we're going to sing this song, and here's why. We're singing this song, and here's why. And And he started you saw his excitement. He's telling about the lyrics and how each lyric is going to talk about this aspect of the truth. Says, These are bold songs we're singing on Sunday. We're talking about the truth. I love that. I love that. In fact, you know, we all, we have different opinions, right, uh, in, the, in this room. Let's just be a family here. We, we have different opinions about style of music sometimes. How loud things should be, how quiet. And I, I've heard I've heard comments, and, and as long as those are expressed well, which they, they are, you know, that's great. We, we want to have that dialogue. But here's the cool thing to me. 
You know what I've never had? I've never had someone come up to me and say, Hey, Daniel, that, that song we sang today, that did not contain the truth. It was an error. And here's why. That is immensely encouraging to me. And we can, well, hey, you know, we're a family. We'll continue to work through the other stuff, and that's great. But, but I love, I love the fact that the truth is proclaimed through our, our songs. The truth is proclaimed through how we worship together. You know, Mike picks out groups like Sovereign Grace. Not a lot of churches sing Sovereign Grace music in terms of majority of, of churches in the United States. Mike has brought that to our church. So grateful. God-exalting lyrics. Style is going to change, but what our, what our objective is, what our objective is, is to be united by our common confession of truth. Here's the third thing. Here's the third thing. We're bound to one another and God for eternity by truth. He says in, in uh, verse 2, he says, all this is because of the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. There's this, this truth that abides in us. I think he's, he's alluding there not just to the content of the doctrine, but the person upon which the doctrine is, is based, Jesus Christ, who is the truth. John 14, 6, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Ephesians four twenty one says that the truth is, is in Jesus. Now, what I think this means is if, if the truth abides in you, if Jesus Christ abides in us, who is the truth, there's not this momentary confession of the truth. It's not like we, for one moment we say, okay, here's what's true for right now. At this moment in time, here's what's true. What I think this means is that what, what's true right now is going to be that which is true tomorrow. And what's true tomorrow is going to be true the day after that. You see where I'm going here? <laughs> and what's true the day after that is going to be true on into eternity. The truth abides with us. That which is, in, is reality abides with us and is going to continue to abide with us forever. How does that help me love you? How does that thing about the nature of truth help me love you? I think it cautions me about the temptation to base our relationship on that which is fashionable. And it cautions me about the danger of being passionate about those things that are fashionable for a moment. What's popular to take a stand on today is not going to be the issue that's popular to take a stand on tomorrow. And if I base our relationship upon our willingness to talk about only issues that are fashionable to be passionate about in the moment of the time, our relationship is not going to stand the test of time. It's not going to be based upon truth. It's very popular today. I don't think I, I, don't think I would engender any controversy if I, I spoke out against child trafficking. And, and that's good to speak out against child trafficking. If I spoke out for the rights of the unborn child, then I'm going to make some people even in the church nervous. My call as a believer is to understand, look, the truth is with us forever, and our relationship needs to passionately pursue that which is true 
in all areas of life, especially those areas that are under attack. Here's what Martin Luther said. I think Martin Luther is exactly right in this. Martin Luther said, If I profess with the loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except precisely that little point, that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking, I am not confessing Christ, however boldly I am professing Christ. You hear what he's saying? If I agree with, with all the truth of God, but I just don't talk about that one aspect of the truth that's under attack, it doesn't matter how loudly I'm professing Christ, I'm not confessing Christ. He says, where the battle rages, there the loyalty of the soldier is proved. And to be steady on all the battlefield besides is mere flight and disgrace if he flinches at that point. Our call is to love each other on a truth that's an eternal truth. To proclaim the whole counsel of God in our relationships with one another. No matter what is popular in the moment in which we exist. Here's the last thing I want you to see about the nature of truth and how it helps us love. Last thing. We're encouraged by God through truth. He says in verse 3, we're encouraged by God through truth. Verse 3, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Father's Son, in truth and love. And so he continues this future tense. In verse 2, he's talking about the future. And he continues that future tense. He says, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us. It, It continues. It's ongoing. Who's it from? From God the Father and from the Father's Son, Jesus Christ. How? In truth and love. Grace here refers to God's unmerited, our un, his undeserved kindness toward us. Mercy is his compassion. It, mercy is what God, causes God to look upon us with pity, to forgive us. Peace is not just a lack of conflict, but, but wholeness of life and rest in him, calm. How can we be sure that those things are ours? How can we know that grace, mercy, and peace is ours? Because there's truth. I'm encouraged by God through truth. If I doubted that truth existed, if I doubted my ability to know truth, if I doubted my ability to to know God and, and how to live, I couldn't believe in love. I couldn't believe that God loved me. Because how do I know? There's no truth. I don't base my understanding of truth upon an idolatrous conception of love. Instead, I base my understanding of love upon this foundation of truth. And as I do so, what do I I understand? I understand that the character of God demands that I emulate God, that I must be holy as he is holy in our relationship. The the purpose of our relationship is, is for me to sacrifice myself for your benefit. There's nothing you have to do to earn my love. There's nothing you have to earn do to, to earn my desire to care for you. And as I care for you, as I pursue a loving relationship with you, what does that what does that mean? means that I'm, I'm emulating the God of truth. I'm exercising love in a way that's consistent with reality, with who God has truly designed and called us to be. Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the good news of your son Jesus. We thank you for the truth that exists here. And we pray that as we approach one another, we would do so in, in, in true ways that our relationship with each other would be based upon the truth, upon a shared conviction of who you are and how you desire us to live in community. And we pray this in your son Jesus' name. Amen.